0: Welcome to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan McRoydis. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. How did the events of the 1960s and 1970s lead to the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980? Here with us to discuss this today is Lawrence Jurdum. Dr. Jurdum is a U.S. historian who received his Ph.D. from Fordham University with a specialty in the history of American conservatism. His writings and commentary have been featured in a wide number of publications, including National Review, The New York Times, Newsweek, The Washington Post, Cold War History, and History News Network. Dr. Jardim is also author of a newly released book, Paving the Way for Reagan, the Conservative Press, and the Forging of the Reagan Foreign Policy, 1964-1980. to 1980. Dr. Jardim, welcome. Thanks, Jonathan. Good to be with you. Just to start off, how did you come to you know undertake uh, the project of writing this book?
1: Well, when you're in a PhD program, a dissertation tends to be a group effort. I had been thinking of a topic for some time, and around the time I was considering what I was going to write about, Bill Buckley passed away, and his obituary was on the front page of the New York Times, and there was tons written about him, a lot of television coverage and other uh, media coverage. And I found it fascinating that for a man who had written dozens of books, thousands of columns, had been on television for three decades or so, so little had actually been written about him. At the time I began my research, there was really one biography that had been written about him. And I thought, well, it'd be really interesting to write about Bill Buckley Since my area of expertise was American conservatism, I thought it would be interesting to write about Buckley and how he influenced Ronald Reagan and and the Reagan presidency. As I began my research, I happened to discover that there was another book that was coming out on uh, the uh, early years of National Review and Bill Buckley. And so I had to shift at the suggestion of my committee and so i happened to think of or it was suggested that i think of other publications that could fit in to my arguments about how these conservative publications influenced president reagan and the republican party i thought about human events which was considered by president reagan to be his favorite conservative newspaper and then one of my advisors suggested commentary so in a sense i was writing about all three areas of all three intellectual areas of the American conservative movement. And
0: that's how the project came to be. Can you go over the basic premise of the book? This is this is basically a foreign policy book and one and one about media, is that correct?
1: It is. It, it, it's a book that talks about national review, human events, and commentary, and how the ideas, or rather how the foreign policy ideas Influenced Ronald Reagan before and during his presidency and also in, um, Influenced a number of members of the American conservative movement or the conservative wing of the Republican Party I talk about a number of key events um, That occurred from 1964 to 1980 that were significant within the arena of foreign policy and these included the Vietnam War detente, which includes uh, President Nixon's opening to China, his negotiations with the Soviet Union, the Panama Canal, uh, the issue of oil and OPEC and the energy crisis. I also talk about the uh, Iranian hostage crisis and I talk about the United Nations and South Africa. I'm sorry, rather, the United Nations. And then there's a chapter on South Africa, or more specifically, Rhodesia.
0: You had mentioned some of the publications, National Review, Human Events. Um, Who was... Can you give our audience a brief background? Who was the conservative media? Um, Who were the main figures? And what was their general general philosophy, especially about foreign policy?
1: Well, the, the major figures within the conservative media... Uh, Certainly, William F. Buckley Jr. was really the the face or the public face of American conservatism. He was the editor-in-chief of National Review, a magazine he founded in 1955, and essentially was a magazine that encapsulated the major, uh, strains of American conservatism. We had things like libertarianism or the arguments for free market, which were, in, uh, it was encompassed by a gentleman named Frank Meyer. Um, we had the, what one might call traditional conservatism or social conservatism, which was, um, personified by the conservative philosopher, Russell Kirk. And then we had, um, the idea that essentially bound, binded all of American conservatism together, which was anti-communism. And that was under the auspices of James Burnham. Human events was essentially a, a newspaper. It was a tabloid, tabloid newspaper. I guess really the closest that could be compared uh, to human events today really would be Breitbart. I mean, if you recall, if you look at Breitbart, you see a uh, uh, a newspaper with bold headlines. That's really what, what Human Events was. It was a, a very influential and powerful publication that appealed to grassroots uh, conservatives. And that was something that was run by uh, two gentlemen. One was a gentleman by the name of Thomas Winter, who was a fellow who was a uh, conservative activist, who was president of the American Conservative Union among other organizations. And there was another gentleman named Alan Riskin, who essentially day-to-day wrote the major editorial that one would see when one looked at human events. Uh, uh, Alan Riskin's writing was very powerful, it was very short, it was very blunt, and it was very strong. And as I said, it appealed to conservative activists and people like Ronald Reagan and other members of the right, because ultimately from week to week, Riskin's message would be very similar in that he might write on detente, that there might be an an editorial on detente over three consecutive weeks. The language would essentially be the same, but the message might be a little bit different or the details might be a little bit different. And conservatives could use those for talking points when they got up to address the Congress or the Senate or go back and talk to their various uh, constituents in their districts. It's good ammunition uh, for them uh, against against the Democrats. And the third uh, publication was Commentary, which was, as I said, the neoconservative publication. And that was run by a gentleman by the name of Norman Podhoretz, who um, essentially had been uh, the managing editor of commentary from really the uh, early 1960s up until, uh, I believe, the late, uh, or maybe just after, just the beginning of of the 2000s or so. So those were sort of the three uh, publications, and those were the personalities that really dominated them. And in using these publications, each one of them, uh, Buckley, Riskin, Winner, and, and Podhoritz all had their own uh, little uh, share of influence and uh, one might say political power in terms of influencing uh, members of the right all the way up to presidents from uh, Richard Nixon and and Ronald Reagan after him.
0: When did they start to really become influential within the Republican Party? Are we talking the early... Um, are we talking the Eisenhower era or are we talking post Eisenhower into the 1960s? I, th-
1: I think really they became, I think, I think in a way, uh, well, they were, they were always influential in one way or another. I think the key point to make is these, um, publications were not created, uh, for the general public. Certainly they were available on newsstands and through subscription, but they were really created to reach the, uh, elites within uh, within politics or one might what one might call the policymakers uh, Buckley had wanted to create National Review as an alternative to what the nation had been during the New Deal uh, it was his goal to create a magazine uh, what in his view in a sea of, of liberal publications and try to create a magazine of conservative thoughtful opinion that had the ability to offer alternative, Uh, ideas in foreign and domestic policy that might influence prominent politicians and other intellectuals who were in the halls of power at that particular time. So I would say that they really were always uh, influential. Obviously, things grew significantly uh, once um, Senator Goldwater lost the uh, election in 1964. And then really from 1964 up Through uh, 1980, you had various issues popping up like the ones that I've described where all of these different magazines were writing thoughtful, astute articles about what sort of platform the Republicans might offer their constituents and making really um, relevant and serious criticisms about the foreign policy of the Presidents Johnson, uh, Kennedy, Johnson, obviously, uh, Carter, but they were also very critical of President Nixon and Gerald Ford as well. And they could also be very critical of Ronald Reagan, too. These, all these magazines, I view, were sort of what one might call, to quote a title of a Bill Buckley book, The Keeper of the Tablets. They were really responsible for guarding uh, conservatism and the ideas of conservatism. And if you got too far away, if anybody got too far off the path, whether it was Republican president or even a conservative president, the magazines had no problem taking them to task for making what they viewed as some serious mistakes.
0: This year marks the 50th anniversary of 1968. Let's let's take a look at that for a moment. Um, Richard Nixon um, is the nominee that year. Um, really, there's nobody, um, there's no other rival um, in the Republican Party that comes close, save for Ronald Reagan and Nelson Rockefeller. But uh, Nixon enters the primaries and uh, he, wins, um, he wins the nomination at the convention um, in Miami in August of 1968. Um, Nixon had some conservatives in his inner circle. Um, you know, just to f- name a few of different strands, for example, Pat, Pat Buchanan, who'd be considered a paleoconservative. Uh, Marty Anderson, who would go on to serve um, in the Nixon administration as well, and uh, Donald Rumsfeld, um, obviously. How did conservatives generally feel, um, the conservative media, uh, feel about uh, Nixon's nomination for president in 1968? Well, I also don't want to forget Richard Allen. That's right. um, Who
1: was a foreign policy advisor of, of President Nixon's and was viewed himself as a mainstream conservative. Um. Well, it's an interesting, you know, Richard Allen, in fact, since I just mentioned him, uh, Richard Allen said to me that uh, Nixon had a deep fear of the conservative media. And this goes back to uh, the question you just asked me about the conservatives that were within uh, President Nixon's or rather Vice President Nixon's orbit uh, during 1968. Um you know, Pat Buchanan was very instrumental in bringing members of the right into the Nixon circle. Um, the conservatives always had problems with Richard Nixon. They never really trusted him. They never believed that his, uh, the positions that he held, or the fact that he uh, often would, would tout conservative positions, they never believed that that he he really believed what he was saying and this was something that many uh of members of the right particularly those who wrote for the conservative journals of opinion were concerned with um as i said earlier uh, anti-communism was really the thing that bound the three strands of american conservatism together and of course president nixon uh, at that time was one who was well known as a very staunch anti-communist, going back to his days uh, as the leader uh, when uh, in the perse- prosecution of, of Alger Hiss. And so the members of the right who wrote for these magazines believed that Nixon would be somebody who would, at the end of the day, would at least hold up this anti-communist position.
0: Whitaker Chambers, for, for one, who, uh, who would go on to write for National Review.
1: Yes. Yes, although, it, you know, Whitaker Chambers, like James Burnham, both men were quite cynical. Um, they, neither one of them believed that uh, the American people or had the will to defeat uh, communism, but the idea of, well, you know, the whole peaceful coexistence arguments and containment and every, all of that— People thought, well, Nixon is, is well qualified. He has these staunch uh, anti-communist bona fides, and perhaps uh, we can we can trust him. And abs- and since the the members of the right had been out of power for quite some time, uh, they decided to go with Nixon. Um, Nixon charmed Bill Buckley and a number of other figures uh, on the right when he had a meeting with them, uh, which Mr. Buchanan chronicles uh, in. Uh, in his book. And Buckley and others were really charmed by Nixon's knowledge and his, his incredible ability to, uh, to discuss different ideas. And in the end, they thought, well, we're not thrilled with, with Nixon, but uh, uh, we'll go with him. I mean, those like William Rusher, uh, who was the publisher of National Review, never really trusted uh, Nixon. But Buckley was the spokesperson for the right and he thought, well, well, we'll give it a try. So they decided to go with Nixon, and uh, obviously they were all quite happy when he defeated uh, Vice President Humphrey um, in 68.
0: In the 1960s, um, Lyndon Johnson escalated uh, the war in Vietnam. Um, conservatives are generally known as more hawkish uh, in foreign policy, you know, save for— um, a few more, I guess, traditional, uh, traditional conservatives. A few of them. Um, did they, do they believe, um, given their anti-communist stance, that the Vietnam War wasn't was a worthy cause, and were they? Um, how did they feel about uh, Johnson's escalation and ultimately his execution of it? Well, ultimately,
1: they believed that not enough was being done, as. Uh, as, as a number of, of people said to me when I um, – as David Keene, in fact, said to me, who uh, was a gentleman who, uh, who, who knew Nixon, Reagan, and, and was essentially someone who was there, who was president of the creation, so to speak, of the, of the American conservative movement, said to me, when you fight a war, you fight a war to win. And this is something really – this was a theme or a mantra that, that the right believed was not being done sufficiently uh, by Lyndon Johnson. It was sort of this, what one might call the drip, drip, drip strategy, which didn't seem to go anywhere. You were slowly, uh, be it whether you were slowly putting more troops in, whether you were slowly doing more bombing, uh, the right believed not enough was being done. I mean, many, most of the, most of the members of the right were very much supportive of what, um, of what Barry Goldwater wanted to do. You know, the idea of mining Haiphong uh, harbor, uh, invading North Vietnam, bombing North Vietnam far uh, more heavily than, than, than Johnson wanted to do or ended up doing. So they were constantly criticizing, uh, LBJ for, for his tactics. Um, and this was a, a very, very, um, popular thing and frequent thing that you could read in, in human events or national review on, on any given day. Um, it was It was something that the right constantly criticized uh, Lyndon Johnson for. And, and you, as I said, you could read dozens of columns in, in human events, which was a, as I said, was a newspaper which was really made up of a consortium of conservative writers. You had military writers, you had policy writers. all of them were critical of, of Lyndon Johnson and all of them believed much more uh, could be done. and Ronald Reagan frequently, uh, when he was campaigning for governor in, in 66, all of the most of which was covered in, in human events, he was constantly criticizing Johnson for not doing enough and, and not making a strong enough effort uh, that he was ruining uh, American credibility by not doing uh, as much as could be done in order to win the war. So it was a pretty um, you knew where the Republican Party or rather you knew where the conservative movement certainly stood. Uh, when you picked up these magazines and read about the progress, or in their opinion, lack of progress of the war.
0: Did they believe in that there was, there had to be at some point, some kind of, uh, some kind of exit strategy? Um, you know, when Nixon came into office in uh, 1968, um, or when he came to office in, in 1969, he wanted to end the war, what would he called peace with honor? Um, did, how did that square with, how did that square with conservatives?
1: Well, I I think that that the conservatives were much more in favor of the aggressive tactics that President Nixon took than what all he uh, he ultimately ended up doing. Uh, Obviously, they were very much in favor of the bombing of Cambodia. Uh, The other issue that the conservative media had was about Henry Kissinger and somebody whom they never uh, really trusted either. they, I, think this was, they, I think they viewed Nixon as, as really uh, being intellectually dishonest in terms of, of what he said that he was going to do about being extremely vocal and really touting uh, his anti-communist uh, philosophy, but then essentially uh, doing what many conservatives consider to be a great betrayal by ultimately uh, abandoning uh, the North Vietnamese,
0: Moving on to Nixon's um, sort of grand strategy of diplomacy um, and how, that, how the conservative media reacted to that, um, he, he essentially wanted to, you know, a goal of his was, was to go to China um, and he established rapprochement with the rapprochement with the People's Republic of China by going to Beijing in February of 1972. Uh, a couple months later, he goes to the Soviet Union and establishes a policy of détente and uh, signs, a historic arms control treaty with the C- Soviet Union. Um, Nixon's philosophy was sort of a realist approach, that in in dealing with these two countries um, separately, sometimes he could gain leverage in the Vietnam War. Um, he could uh, he could uh, you know link up issues with the Middle East, uh, with the Soviet Union, and, and the Berlin issue. Um, how did this realist did the, the conservatives see any wisdom in the realist approach to foreign policy?
1: Oh, no. Well, they hated it. <laughs> I mean, they, first of all, China was when, – when, uh, when Nixon announced that he was going to visit the People's Republic of China, I actually have a scene in this in the book. Ronald Reagan was sitting in his living room with Bill Buckley and uh buckley's brother james buckley who would go on to be the uh, senator from new york Uh, nixon uh made his speech and after the speech all three men just simply sat there for, for maybe a minute or two and didn't say anything soon after that the phone rang and it was president nixon calling bill buckley to ask him what he thought um China was something that went far, far back with members of the right. They had never uh, forgiven, uh, essentially, Harry Truman or the Democrats for abandoning uh, China to the communists. And the idea that uh, uh, a man who considered himself to be, uh, you know, a major anti-communist figure was going to go into this – go visit the People's Republic of China uh, was a complete anathema uh, to those on the right, Um, combined with the fact that Nixon was willing to essentially uh, cast Taiwan to the wolves, to remove Taiwan from the United Nations in favor of the People's Republic of China was, I mean, inconceivable to, um, those on the right, uh, in terms of, uh, the Soviet union. I mean, that was another, uh, that was another, uh, kind of, a, a great stunning, uh, stunning blow to, uh, to, to Buckley and, and, uh, and his called co- and his colleagues. I mean, they couldn't understand why an American president wanted to essentially give credibility, uh, to, um, well, as Ronald Reagan called it, the center of evil in the modern world. So, it was a really stunning uh, series of events. Something clearly that the members on the right never forgave uh, President Nixon for. It was clearly responsible for uh, uh, John Ashbrook running uh, in a you know in, in in a primary as a primary challenger, though a weak one uh, against uh, Nixon in '72. But I think that primary challenge really epitomized uh, the anger and disappointment and frustration that those on the right had towards the president. In fact, to the point that National Review and Human Events and every other conservative organization uh, put a major editorial out where they subsequently said that they were going to suspend support uh, for the president's 1972 campaign. And when Nixon heard about it, it, to say the least, upset him a great deal.
0: Could they, did they see any credence in the strategic approach um, behind the diplomacy? I mean, if you even look at Ronald Reagan 10 years later dealing with the Chinese, I'm sorry, 15 years later dealing with the Chinese, um, you know, signing, you know, dealing with Gorbachev, signing arms control tra- uh, uh, treaties. Um, could they see the, despite the fact that they felt, um, you know, uh, possibly betrayed by dealing with communists, um, did they at all see any strategic wisdom behind it?
1: Well, even when Reagan went to, uh, Reykjavik, I mean, I had a, I was told a story by Pat Buchanan who said that when Reagan emerged from his meeting with Gorbachev, uh, Buchanan happened to be there and he happened to have a, maybe the latest, uh, human events with him. And it, it was a scathing editorial in it, uh, on, uh, against president Reagan and against what he was doing. Wow. Uh, so, Uh, This is the thing. I mean, this is really you had this conservative ideology, which granted while both Nixon and Reagan were two pragmatists when it came to uh, international affairs, when they were both in their own ways visionaries in uh, being able to look far ahead of what uh, those uh, who wrote for the conservative journals of opinion were able to do, while they both believed they were doing something that was for the greater good of the United States and the world, uh, those on the right, particularly those who didn't serve in the administ- in either administration, could confidently sit back and write what they thought without any uh, political heat uh, coming back on them.
0: Jumping ahead in your book a little bit to the Panama Canal Treaty, um, could you give us a little bit of background on this? Uh, you might recall the famous, or audience might recall the famous debate between Ronald Reagan and uh, William F. Buckley in 1978. Two icons uh, in the conservative movement, uh, you know, disagreeing on whether we should return uh, the Panama Canal uh, back to the country of Panama or whether we should, uh, whether we should keep it. Um, despite this divide, what was the what was the general view of the conservative media?
1: Well, you. Human Events was very, very passionate about the Panama Canal. They were very much on the side of uh, of President Reagan. Uh, National Review wrote about it as well, but um, Human Events was very passionate about the issue with the Panama Canal. They were very passionate about Reagan uh, during the 76 campaign. And so they wrote quite a bit about, uh, about it, and much more so than, than, uh, than Human Events rather than National Review did, and it was very much an issue uh, for those really grassroots conservatives, the idea that the United States had just been defeated in Vietnam, and here we were again. Uh, essentially giving in, I mean, that was really the belief on on members of the right in regards to something like Vietnam and on something like the Panama Canal, that essentially we were giving in to a third-rate power, that we were allowing these third-rate dictators or third-rate countries to push the United States around. And there was something really wrong with that. It's kind of the same thing in regards to detente. The fact that we were sitting down with China that were rather the Soviet Union, for instance, and offering all of them, offering them technology, offering them grain, making these um, nuclear weapons agreements sort of uh, what those on the right believe was favorable to the Soviet Union and then not really uh, kind of coming after them or condemning them for any of the aggressive wars of liberation that they continued to uh, to do. It was just something that I think resonated with those on the right. The idea that, um, America is continuing to be knocked down and nobody's doing anything about it. And that's really what Reagan's argument was, uh, when he was running in 76 about the Panama Canal, his great mantra was, we built it, this is ours, and we're going to keep it. Um, so that was really the the essence of kind of the dialogue on the part of, of those on the right, um, and particularly at, at human events. Bill Buckley was a little uh, interesting in regards to the Panama Canal. He had essentially changed his position. Um, he was on Reagan's side early on, but in around 1976 or so, I may have the date completely wrong, but he decided to go down to Panama and see for himself. I mean, he kind of went down with the question of if we let the canal go as was slated to happen, was this going to be a complete disaster? Uh, was the canal going to be run badly? Was uh, essentially this, we were going to be giving yet another carte blanche to the Soviet union, allow them to, uh, become involved in this very important waterway and, and, uh, and, um, cause problems for international commerce. And after spending some time in Panama, Buckley concluded that none of this was the case. And so he proceeded to change, um, his mind. And this was something that began a debate, uh, not only on television, but in letters, though, a friendly debate, uh, between he and, uh, Ronald Reagan. In fact, there was a great story that, uh, Buckley writes in his book, the Reagan I knew where he was going to dinner at Reagan's house in Pacific Palisades. And as he drove up there, there was uh, I believe a little sign that Reagan had created where he simply said, it's ours. We paid for it and we're going to keep it. Um, So that, that's sort of the, where, uh, those like like human events stood on the Panama canal just for, uh, for your, your listeners just of, of interest, uh, it was the only debate that Buckley essentially believed that, that he lost on, on firing line. And the letters that came into national review were just, there were very, very few who were on the side of, of Bill Buckley and a number of readers canceled their subscription because they were so stunned, uh, by Buckley's position.
0: Final question. I just want to talk about some of the reverberations of today. Um, You know, President Trump, um, he can be seen even liked by uh, many conservatives for his uh, desire to build up uh, the U.S. military, um, much like Reagan did in the 1980s. Um, But many also dislike his approach for, you know, sitting down with North Korea leader Kim Jong-un or his desire to sit down and Hash it out with uh, President Vladimir uh, Putin of Russia. Um, you also see, you know, more um, what you could call um, isolationist Republicans in in the vein of uh, Rand Paul um, and others um, who are um, acolytes of the of the late uh, Senator John McCain, who who uh, prefer a much more um, hawkish approach. Um, I guess moving on, what um, what influence do you see the conservative media having on the uh, future of, uh, of conservatism and in, in, in the Republican Party um, in the area of foreign policy?
1: I think the, the, the interesting thing is that really following uh, the departure of, of Ronald Reagan from the, from the scene or even the latter parts of, of his presidency – You really had what one might call an embarrassment of riches in the conservative movement. And by that, I mean, it's no longer just National Review and commentary. Human events is no longer being published. But it seems like the conservative movement has grown exponentially and the conservative media with it. I mean, as you said, we uh, you, you have paleo conservatives uh, which one could say is is uh, is uh, represented by the magazine, the uh, partially anyway, by by the American conservative. We have uh, the Weekly Standard. Um, we have all of the digital uh, publications, townhall.com and and Breitbart and all these other publications. And and so it's it, it is great for i think for conservatism and also the dialogue within the conservative media i think is very very rich it's no longer uh everybody seeming to agree with everybody else i mean that was never the purpose of of national review and now i think because of president trump and because of the uh um well one might say the 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 divisiveness he either directly or indirectly brings to political dialogue, uh, you have many people in various aspects of the right who, uh, have dramatically different opinions about, uh, the country, uh, and, uh, where it should be in, uh, in foreign policy. So I, I, think certainly in terms of interest, uh, it's, it's not boring. There's, there's lots of opinions, uh, to go around, and perhaps even many, many more opinions than, say, uh, the period in which I was uh, writing.
0: Our guest today was Lorne Jurdum. His new book is Paving the Way for Reagan, The Conservative Press and the Forging of the Reagan Foreign Policy, 1964 to 1980. Dr. Jurdum, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jonathan. It's nice to speak with you.
0: Please check back for future podcasts at NixonFoundation.org or on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. This is Jonathan Mavridis signing off.